the curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find Hello and welcome back to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And this is episode number 35 of the Beyond Nashy thread of shows we do here on the podcast mm-hmm. where we explore strange and different kind of slightly connected bits of uh, Spanish horror cinema that uh, don't include Paul Nashy mm. but have some, mm. you know, some tendrils, some connections, yeah. yep. some... Uh, Okay, they're dish movies we want to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's just let's put it let's put it fairly bluntly. The the yeah the connection is tenuous to say the least, but uh, <laughs> we Tonight, never let that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You never can tell. Tonight, Troy thought it might be a good idea to return to the Franco well. Mm-hmm. Was I right? That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of us were already, uh, but, but both of us were, were well aware of this film already. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the fact that we decided to uh, talk about it as part of a show uh, probably means that we like it a little bit. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about it more as we go along, and uh, we'll find some interesting things to say. But before then, we have a few things. First... For the, uh, the for those of you who want some Nashy podcasting, uh, and we're not giving it to you this month because we're going to be yeah. talking about a Jess Franco film, mm-hmm. um, you might want to kick yourself over to episode 63 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where it, they do a Nashy November episode where they mm-hmm. talk about, uh, well, they they pretend they're only going to talk about three Paul Nashy films. They end up really kind of talking about more than just the, <laughs> yeah. the three Paul Nashy films they set out to talk about because... They they talk about Mark of the Wolfman for a little while when mm. they're kind of going through uh, mm. the the background on uh, Jacinto Molina, mm-hmm. uh, but they're supposedly only talking about Vengeance of the Zombies, mm-hmm. uh, the Mummy's Revenge, and the Beast of the Magic Sword. But uh, lots of nasty talk over there. Um, that'll give you a good dose, and it's mm-hmm. it's really kind of entertaining and fun to hear other people talking about yeah, the absolutely. works uh, the works of the great Spanish horror icon yep. for a change. Uh, shout out to them, man, for yeah. diving so headlong into uh, the Nashiverse and kind of uh, wallowing around in it. That's it's very cool. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend going and checking it out. Yep. Also, dun, 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 <laughs> new commentary announcement. Yeah, that's right. From the good folks at uh, Severin Films. Uh, Rod and I had the honor of participating in a, uh, contributing to a upcoming Blu-ray release uh, that's going to uh, drop on, well, by the time you hear this episode, it'll have already dropped. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, Severin is uh, releasing a Jose Larraz film, and uh, who is famous for, of course, best-known film, obviously, was Vampires, but he made a lot of other things of, of uh, interest, and uh, this film is called Black Candles. And uh, it's a film that Rod and I will try and tackle the question of, uh, is it a sex film masquerading as a horror film or vice versa? And uh, (laughs) I don't know if we answer that question, but we had a lot of fun doing the commentary. I was really glad to be part of it. Uh, What's really exciting is some of the extras that are going to be on this Blu-ray. 
Yeah. Uh, this did. This film did come out once uh, already on Blu-ray, but uh, uh, this Blu-ray has this coming out from Severn has some really cool extras, and in particular, it's going to have a, a little documentary on Helga Linnea. Ah, uh, yes, yes, and Miss Miss Linnea is one of the stars of this particular film, and uh, as you might know, for if you've listened to this podcast for any stretch of the, any stretch of time at all, uh, we have a lot of love for Miss uh, Miss Linnea, and mm-hmm. uh, of course, we get to talk about her a good bit mm-hmm. on that uh, commentary track. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, uh, looking at the looking at the other extras, mm-hmm. our commentary track for Black Candles is the least yeah. <laughs> reason to buy it, <laughs> right? Because those extras are looking really juicy. I, yeah. can, I cannot wait to check them out. So yeah. Black Candles is coming from Severin, yeah. or you um, may know it under its title, Hot Fantasies, <laughs> which we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which we 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 have we we have some things to say, folks. Yeah, that's right. That we commentary do. track. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was pretty happy with the way that one came out, and uh, yeah, yeah, mm. hot fantasies. fantasies. How many how many how many ways do we find that? <laughs> yeah, to say. <laughs> and I, I will I will say that it it is the first time that we felt the the need to do a commentary track. Uh, partially to defend a film from its director and writer. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah, it's gonna say yeah, yeah. Good thing they did not. Good thing Larraz was not uh, <laughs> was was not asked at some point to do a commentary at some point because he would have been quite more mean spirited than mm, we are. A little bit, a little but bit. you know, when you're making a film about Satanist that uh, involves goat sex, yeah. it's po- probably best to just kind of you know <laughs> strap on that bestiality hat and run for the hills, man. So. Folks, uh, we, I'm sure there are other what things. What would a bestiality hat look like? I'm trying to picture that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm picturing, you know, I'm picturing like something made, you know, made from the from the skin of of, a, of, okay. of some yeah. random beast <laughs> with probably like extra things attached to yeah. it, you know, like the the, to, the tooth of a ram or the yeah. horn or the horn of a of a goat. Who knows? And know. it just says, "Yeah, I hit that," you know, on the <laughs> on the front. Yeah. Or yeah, that hit me. Yeah, that hit me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's. That's just perverse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I'm sure there are things we're forgetting to tell you about, but we uh, we do have a few emails that we'll get to at the end of the show. So there's, I'm sure there's some questions in there that we'll have to answer. Mm-hmm. But we'll take just a quick break and come back, and we're going to talk a good little bit about Jess Franco's 1971 film, She Killed in Ecstasy. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. This podcast takes no shortcut in producing outstanding content. How they haven't become more widely recognized is beyond me. I love this show. Smart commentary, in-depth interviews, and great production. It's obvious how serious these guys take their podcast and bring that next level of professionalism that anyone would be hard-pressed to match. There are few things better in life than listening to people who are both passionate and knowledgeable about their subject matter. The Projection Booth, with their wide and wild range of film discussions, is one of those things. Simple as that. The Projection Booth is the highest quality film podcast around. I love the focus on cult films, witty, informative banter, and amazing interviews. The Projection Booth is the best podcast out there, if you're a serious film lover. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. 
Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of here. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything yeah, that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. She killed in ecstasy, 1971. Uh, at least that's when it supposedly came out. Yeah. Uh, during yeah. the year that he made this particular film, Franco made probably 35 other movies. No, not 35. <laughs> he, he did make uh, more than two or three other movies at this yeah. during that same period of time. Yeah, he had slowed down to where he was only working about five times faster than any other filmmaker in the world <laughs> at that time. Well, I think he I think he had uh, a leg up on them because he would just start making a movie whether he had a script or not. Right. So, that helps when you don't have to wait for t- trifles. Like, when you have to trifle with little things like script, you know. I have an idea. Yes. You, you disrobe and mm. go over there. <laughs> I'm going to... Now, Act as if you are pensively considering Walking suicide. Walking to the other side of the room. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to the other side of the room. Yeah, yeah, okay, fairer point than I was making. Good job, Mr. Gwen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, 
you, as I said earlier, you are the one who decided that we would do this particular movie. Mm-hmm. What is it about it that stuck out to you as a as one to uh, to kind to kind of have a conversation about? What's what what about what about this? And I think I know at least one thing, but I wondered if mm-hmm. there was something else for you that stuck out besides Soledad Miranda. <laughs> I was going to say two words: Soledad Miranda. Okay, uh, well, or, or Susan Corda, if you you know, as she was uh, Susan Corda, as she was known <laughs> in, in this film came out. They asked her to change her the, the fake name. Yeah. Yes, because they felt her name sounded too Spanish, so uh, they so she's billed as Susan Corda. But uh, no, actually, I remember. Um, I'd gotten it, I assume, on an earlier release of some kind. I must have gotten it through probably Netflix years ago when they, you know, had some Franco DVDs in there. And, yeah. Because uh, I was already familiar with Soledad Miranda, and I'd already seen some Franco films that I did enjoy. Um, but I just, yeah, um, I didn't have the real, real strong memories of it, except other than just that I had really enjoyed it. And I just, uh, so I got, when, when Severin came out with this nice Blu-ray release, I picked it up and, uh, uh, you know, had not watched it yet. Uh, but, yeah, when we were just talking about Franco's to do, that's one that I've thrown out a few times is, is ones that I'd like to get back to because I just remembered uh, enjoying a lot about it. And, of course, of course, the whole Soledad Miranda Franco uh, collaboration, the you know, is, yeah. is such a fascinating story and, and the work they did together was is, is always interesting. Uh, they worked on, uh, they worked together on five or six films. Mm-hmm. It's funny because this film, as as you see in the extras on the Severin disc, and they talk about how this film was sort of made as a, almost a, I guess a second considered a secondary feature in terms yeah. of its popularity to Vampiris Lesbos. But I think both you and I would agree that this film is better than you know than. Well, Vampiris I enjoy Lesbos. I enjoy it more than Vampires Le- Vampires Lesbos, and I mm. I know that. For for Franco fans, that's probably heretical, but I'm sorry. I just I've yeah. never really I've mm-hmm. never particularly appreciated mm-hmm. uh, Vampires Lesbos uh, in the same way that I do something like Venus and Furs mm-hmm. or several other of the mm-hmm. films that uh, Franco made in the late '60s, early '70s. This period, I think, was very it was very fertile, and I know he was producing at a feverish pitch and really kind of just ramping up mm-hmm. into a. Uh, 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 <laughs> becoming just a machine, producing mm-hmm. film after film after film, but. The ones that I, the ones that I enjoy more are the ones that almost always seem to be the ones that were these cast-off things that he mm. was he was making on the fly, kind of as the ideas came to him. And I think that may be part of what appeals mm. to me about them. I'm not really sure. Yeah, well, I think one of the reasons that the Soledad Miranda films are are, are held up to such a higher esteem and and come off so much more impressively. Is that, uh, you know, because obviously he had just very short time to work with her, this is during a time when he was really, despite the pace he was working at, pretty much getting some amazing production values and and, and yeah. scenery and just, you know, the films are just very lush and beautiful to look at, you know, and, and, and the cinematography is great. Um, you know, had, had he continued to work with her and had she gone on to become, you know, to work, you know, I mean, she might have then fallen, she might have then had to have endured some of the... <laughs> some of the the lesser budgets, quickly quicker made films. You know, she might have been True. in some of the films that wouldn't have held up as well. But well, I mean, the thing is, when she made this film, she was uh, twenty six or twenty seven. Mm-hmm. Of course, sadly, this this is the last movie they made together before yeah. her before her tragic death in a car accident. But yes, Franco was very much interested in making more movies with her because, in a lot of ways, um, she was probably the the like version one point of what Lena Ramey would become a couple yeah. of years later, yeah. which is this ethereal, beautiful, large-eyed, incredibly mm. emotionally expressive person who could function just as effectively in a silent movie mm-hmm. as in a film yeah. made with sound. Mm. 
She's she's solo that Morant. As a matter of fact, I would go out on a limb, and I don't think that uh, anybody would would naysay me to a large degree. But I think that it is very much possible that solo that Miranda would have done much more in the way of shall we say firing the creative juices uh, of Jess Franco. And I know that that probably comes off incorrectly. <laughs> phrasing, yeah, 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 yeah. Phrasing. Um, if she had lived longer if she had been around for another 10 years mm-hmm. uh now of course that means we wouldn't have the lena remay that we, we 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 all know and love but at the same time soledad miranda is kind of the the early version of that particular mm-hmm. type of character type of actress that franco would employ again and again and again at the at the heart of these often very personal films i mean don't get me wrong he also you know, he, he, one of the first films he made that uh, Soledad was involved with was not a personal film. It's but it, it's Count Dracula. Right. She was in that as well. Yeah. But the idea of having someone as game for this stuff as Soledad was, uh, who I, I don't know that she was as much of an exhibitionist as Lena Remy turned out to be. I was gonna say. Uh, I was gonna say. Uh, would she? You know, she was obviously had a had a lot of courage to do things on screen. But would you have gone as far as Lena went for Jess and some of those? That's a, it's it's a, a good, good question. question. I, I, yeah. Well, it's a, you know all the fans of Franco play this uh, what if game. You know, often you always have to. You know, because Soledad Miranda was just had just signed a big contract to they they were really going to try and launch her. As you know, as a star, an international yeah. star, yeah. she was about to get probably what was going to, to be some some prestigious productions. And the first question is, what would that have meant for Franco? I think she very much appreciated what Jess Franco had done for her. Right? Would he have been able to ride her coattails into some more prestigious productions? If he had, then would he? If he had made that step to the next level of quote unquote respectability, you know, would that have slowed? Naturally, it seems like that would have slowed his pace as a filmmaker if he got more prestigious work, or would he have rebelled would he against have, that? Would yeah. he have just been like, no, this is not the world that I want to work in, you know, because I can't do as much at this pace and and explore the things that I want to explore, yeah, you know, and uh, and and then again, like we said before, what would it have meant for Lena Romay? And you know, Lena Romay was. You have a feeling somehow she would have made a mark anyway because she was such an extraordinary woman, you know. But if she and Franco had not begun their collaboration, you know, it's a, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I'm, I would have. It is. You're right. It is a. It's a. It's a mental exercise. It's it a, is. Yeah. It's a game for fans of of Franco's mm-hmm. uh, cinema to mm-hmm. play with over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gaming different things out. What if Soledad Miranda had been the star of you know this film or that mm-hmm. film or whatever. Yeah. And of course, all of these are you know unknowns and they're unknowable. And it is fun to surmise. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you're going to have to come back to just the six the six finished films that yeah. Franco and Soledad made together. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get me wrong; she made a lot of films before yeah. that period of time. Uh, some you know some of them, most of them are bit roles, but some of them are. You know, juicy, juicy little performances, nice, mm-hmm. nice, uh, nice parts in certain films, but it really is this uh, this period in her uh, her mid twenties when she started working with Franco, where she comes into prominence, at least for film nerds like us, mm-hmm. where we're staring at her work and staring at her body. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I can't. Okay, I can't avoid. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't avoid. She's the a obvious stunning, there. stunning beauty. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no question about it. That's the only word that's a note that that. But, <laughs> you think, but, but once again, as as with uh, so many of these actresses from this period of time, the ones that are so uh, so incredibly memorable, there's something about them in 
they're, there's something about their face, and it's almost always mm. an incredibly expressive pair of eyes. Yeah. And Soledad Miranda definitely has that, mm. and uh, I think we'll talk a li- in, a, in a little while. I, I think. Well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just do this. I'll say, uh, th- this is this is the way Stephen Thrower put it in uh, Murder's Passions, his mm. one of his uh, one of his books on Franco. In many of Franco's films, the interior life of his characters is opaque, impossible to read, or simply absent. There can seem to be an outright disdain for psychology or "quote unquote" soul in his work, reminiscent of other artists of this type. But Soledad Miranda kind of plays against that to a certain degree. There's a quote in this particular film where, where her character says about a painting, hmm. it's just a composition, a play of colors, nothing more, but I love it. And that is uh, a good way of looking at these types of films that Franco was making, but She Killed an Ecstasy is an intriguing example of Franco's emphasis on exteriority being subverted by an extraordinary performance, and that would be Miss mm-hmm. Miranda's. Take the scenes in which her character, Mrs. Johnson, has sex with the people whom she blames for her husband's suicide. Were it not for the eyes of Soledad Miranda, we know nothing of her f- character's feelings about the vileness she performs in the name of vengeance. Mm-hmm. And that is very true. Yeah. There is not a lot of dialogue in this movie, full stop, and then there is almost zero dialogue explaining the, the motivations and the intense emotional undercurrents mm-hmm. of the actions that Soledad Miranda's character takes. Mm-hmm. So you're having the, the, the emotional jolt that you're getting from this character's actions do not necessarily revolve around the mm-hmm. actions themselves. Mm-hmm. She does murder yeah. several people in the movie. There's not a lot of blood, not a lot of gore. As a matter of fact, very often... <laughs> Mm-hmm. In these low-budget or slash no-budget films that Franco was making during this mm-hmm. period of time, it, I can't decide if he's shying away from violence or if he just he he didn't want to uh, use a lot of graphic violence on screen, or if he couldn't. In other words, I don't know if it was a yeah. a, a, a desire to not have it, an inability to have it, mm-hmm. or a an artistic choice to a degree. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but. These deaths, as depicted on screen, pretty much are gotten across to us. Their viciousness are gotten is, is gotten across to us, except for one particular one, simply by watching Soledad Miranda's face mm-hmm. as she goes through the actions and takes these people's lives. We'll discuss each individual murder and whether or not it's believable or not. <laughs> sure. Well, there's there's, yeah. one, there's one in particular we're going to yeah. have to talk about, mm-hmm. but without her incredibly graceful and an in, in, in intense performance uh, this film would I, I have to say I think that to a large degree the film would be a flat line uh, I, I agree watching okay. it the second time through I mean I, I, I was like she carries the film she yeah. really does it's not that there aren't some other points of interest stuff, but essentially I mean this film is a, a remake of Diabolical Dr. Z is, to a large, is, degree, to a large yeah. degree you know and uh, but yeah it's her and it's not just because she's beautiful. I mean, it's because she has an incredible magnetism. She has an incredible screen presence, you know, yes. and like you said, what's, uh, you know, like you can, you, she expresses, as you said, so much of her character through what she does with her eyes. Yeah. So she, she really does have a great uh, uh, screen presence and you can see the potential there. And I think that she, 
I think she liked, I mean, I think that she was responding to the challenge of, of what she was being able to do in these films. Because if you watch the, the little documentary on there about her that's yeah. made by the woman who, who, is, who runs the website, who's researched her, you know, and runs a website devoted to her, um, she points out that, you know, when you see all the footage and, and, and stills from her pre earlier films, you know, she's, she's played a lot of times, played the innocent ingenue, and, and even her hairstyles were made her look like a younger person. And yeah, the she look that the, she the, adopted. The pixie haircuts. Yeah, and it's funny because there's a couple of times this film where she wears wigs that I wonder if yeah. almost were a little bit of a dig, her own dig at some of her earlier films, some of the wigs that she wears. I kind of wondered that too. When yeah. She starts to play, you know, she starts to play mm. slightly different physical. She, she, it's like she's trying on different physical appearances to pretend to be, mm. uh, you know, to be sexually alluring to the, mm. to the particular, whatever particular victim that she's picked out for this, for this yeah. night. Yeah. And her biographer points out that, you know, that, yeah, that she did not look like the way she looks in Franco's films, that look she adopted for his films, she did not look like that prior to that in her any of her previous yeah. films. She yeah. did this specifically for him, which is another thing I get back to why I think that she probably really appreciated what Franco was allowing her to do. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think I think that um, this was a unique step in a new direction for her. Mm-hmm. And I think that she must have, to some degree, have been responding. You're right. Mm-hmm. Because you don't throw yourself into this type of filmmaking. This, this is... Let's be clear, an exploitative film. This mm-hmm. is a, this is a film that's built on uh, murders and nudity. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. that's the reason the movie exists. That's what's going to entice uh, a completely <laughs> unknowledgeable public into a theater to see this movie. So, the fact that uh, she has so much of a uh, a sense of self and a, and, a, and such as uh, a sense of self assurance. To put herself on display and to be so forthright in the the cruelty she's uh, she's playing at inflicting here mm-hmm. she's 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 uh, she's brave and she's very very uh, vicious in uh, what she's able to get across and it's and it's I keep wanting to use the word vivacious but it doesn't fit for mm-hmm. the tone of right. this movie mm-hmm. but she is an actress who does just leap off the screen at yeah. you. There's something yeah. about her that yeah. the camera absolutely loves. It does, yeah, yeah. Inspektor, eben ist die Leiche des Professors gebracht worden, der neulich bei Ihnen im Büro war. Über und über mit Stichen bedeckt. Die Leiche ist scheußlich zugerichtet. Was ist das nur für ein Mensch, der all diese Taten begeht? Ein harter, schockierender Film, der schonungslos die Abgründe menschlicher Begierden aufdeckt. Well, let's talk about the plot of the film. Yes, because it is it's so it's so rich and uh, yes and ties together so well. There are no logic. Well, you Absolutely. have to you have to pay attention, yes, or you yes. lose the threat. And you do, you do. So. Okay, yeah. folks, this yeah. the, the, the plot on this could be summed up in about two lines. Yeah. Let's try, let's see if I can do it in two. As Monty Python would call it, waffer thin. You know, <laughs> waffer thin. It's waffer thin. So true. So true. By by the way, I think it's interesting that uh, <laughs> the only the only prints that we have of this movie, which look pretty darn good, at yes, at, they at do. that. Yeah. 
uh, is the German language version right. of it. There's no yeah. French yeah. or Spanish or any you know any, any other any other language that uh, mm-hmm. this film exists in. And I have to say that uh, it's that weird thing of listening to people uh, dubbed in German. Yeah. Uh, that immediately puts me in the the worried position of what what are are these what or should should I should I be worried that they're Nazis is it is it is it a concern is it something that's going to pop up yeah, in the, it, it in basically the final makes, act <laughs> basically it makes every every speech sound like a like Hitler speech you know it makes like you know well i mean which which is good that you know there isn't there isn't a lot of dialogue but the the scenes of uh, what what some characters are are thinking are sly seductions or at least yeah, the, right, right. the negotiating with what yeah. they think is a prostitute <laughs> really kind of come off as, as as something slightly different because it's in German it's, yeah. it's very odd anyway we have uh, <laughs> okay well there's that so uh, oh and I, I do love the fact that one of the things that the Stephen Thoreau points out is that he thinks that the, the German dubbing was evidently done uh in haste uh, because there is a point in the movie where uh, the police inspector uh, who doesn't even have a name by the way right claims that one character is still alive when we've just seen him be killed and that character has been told that the corpse has been found and he's still claiming that character's still alive and it's like okay that was some sloppy dubbing yeah 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 I love the joke that uh, that uh, Stephen Thoreau makes. He says, "With police protection like this, no wonder the real survivor, Donnan, is so nervous." <laughs> Here's the story, folks. There's a there's a doctor who seems to be more of a research mm-hmm. research scientist doctor than you know your your you know ear nose and throat kind of guy mm-hmm. uh, named uh, Doctor Johnson, mm-hmm. played by uh, a German actor named Fred Williams, or at least the stage name, mm-hmm. and he. Uh, well, I can't really defend what he's doing, but he's apparently because yeah, I don't really. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't defend his experiments. Let's, and that's a, and that's another thing that well, when keeps you have the, human embryos I mean, floating I mean, around yeah, you. You kind of okay. He's talking about uh, you know the the sacrifices that need to be made, and we're staring at an unborn yeah uh-huh. fetus, and it's just yeah. like one of those, in a jar. Yeah, and you think to yourself, "There's a, these are Germans, right? This is, <laughs> this is German." So I'm staring at a fetus in a jar. And he's listening to a doctor yeah. who is on the verge of just declaring himself a mad scientist. <laughs> so I'm not positive yeah. if I need to, uh-huh. to be wary of right. where this is going. But, of course, the movie goes in a completely different direction. Uh, he is uh, conducting experiments, and he's starting to have some success. And, and his goals are good. Don't get me wrong. Mm. If, if he was able to accomplish what he's setting out to accomplish, it would be a very positive thing. Which he says he's trying to develop organs where they'll be more resistant to yeah. diseases and things like that. So. Noble causes. Noble cause. Noble mm-hmm. cause. Mm-hmm. We can worry about his methodology some other time because yeah. <laughs> the medical establishment embodied in uh, four different doctors played mm-hmm. by different people. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll like, uh, you know, I guess uh, all. St- it's like Franco's all stars playing these, playing these, <laughs> including playing. himself. Yeah, right. Well, these these other doctors have uh, have uh, de- definitely uh, attack him in every way they can, and. Uh, what would, be the, what would be the best way to put this? Um, they, re- see, they reject I, his findings. They reject him. I, they call him. A, they call him. You know, every kind of nasty name that they can think. I was about of. say. I was about say. They they basically make a like you know the Salem witch tribunals look more look <laughs> rational and like you know grounded yeah. and you know they, they just. I mean, it's yeah. That, and, and I think I just say too that you know, a lot of this film works better. I think if you try and view it as being seen through 
the fracturing mind of our main couple. You know, the fracturing minds of both the doctor and his I wife. I think it's you know? best to see the entire thing as just from the just fracturing crazy mind of, of the director. Yeah. No, oh, <laughs> okay, okay. I thought that's what you were going. To. I thought that's no, what you were no, going no, 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 no. I was going to say actually from Sol- of Soledad Miranda's character. Yeah, yeah. Because she plays the wife of this doctor whose work mm-hmm. is now mm-hmm. uh, being out has been mm-hmm. outlawed. He's no longer uh, going to be allowed to continue this. And as a matter of fact, soon after uh, he is. Uh, yeah, barred like barred from practice, basically. Whatever though, there's a word for that. We're not yeah, thinking yeah, of yeah. it. Yes. Well, soon after this, someone breaks into his uh, his lab and destroys des- destroys all his work to begin with, and so. Well, I think it's supposed to be these four. I mean, it's like they're like they're, they're like a, a a small version of the Universal Mob. You know, they're basically it's like. They're, <laughs> they're, Fair point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, nevertheless, uh, we have he he he's just he's just he's distraught. And, mm-hmm. and starts to, he just basically turns inward on himself mm-hmm. and uh, be- becomes completely withdrawn and uh, enters an intense depression and nothing that his incredibly beautiful wife played by Soledad <laughs> Miranda can bring him around yeah and, that's how we know he's insane when she's wandering yeah. around in her sheer you know robe and he doesn't even <laughs> he didn't and even basically blink. Rubbing herself on him, and he just he just responds not at all, you know. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and he becomes more and more depressed, and uh, then eventually uh, slits his wrists mm-hmm. and kills himself. Yeah. This when when his wife finds his dead body, she of course vows vengeance, and the rest of the film is her setting about killing the the four doctors who she sees as having caused the suicide of her beloved husband, Doctor yeah. Johnson. Yeah. Everybody's reaction to everything in this film is is very baroque and and, and operatic and it's yes. it's extreme. You know, uh, the 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 council of doctors' reaction to his experiments are are so over the top and 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 crazed. Yes. And the things they're saying are again yeah, that makes me feel like. And of course, when we see it's them, like they're in a competition with each other to outdo <laughs> the previous insults. I mean, they say you things know. like "you should be killed," you know, yeah, and no, one of and one of them says they call him the spawn of hell. You know? <laughs> It's like, it's like, are we going a little, a little bit? Yeah, come on, dial it back, dial it back, just a little bit, back a smidge. Yeah, but the the, I I have to admit, I think that I I would I would argue that the best way to view this film is that it is from it is completely from her point of view. Yeah, that everything we're seeing is a stylized memory of the way things happened. They're not completely accurate. The events mm. are probably accurate as to the outcomes, but the, the methodology and the way things happen are probably not accurately being shown to us. Mm. They're more of a, yes. a surrealistic vision of how these things occur. Agree, and it actually and that actually works perfectly with the obvious limited budget that yeah. Franco had because he can show things in very minimal, like when he shows the sometimes shows the council. It's all these strange where they're sitting in these just these couple of rows of seats with a black no background behind them. But when you think about it as how she's remembering it, that's, that's what all, she's focusing on. That's what her on. focus would be. Yeah, strange scenes of you know, great images of like like the image which it makes no sense, but the image you know where we see her just floating like standing in a boat floating out on the on the water. You oh, know, I know for no it, reason other and than and it's just an amazing it's, image and one yes. by the way that that Franco would return to again and again and again as an mm-hmm. image, mm-hmm. especially uh, that, that image of a solitary often vengeful female mm-hmm. standing alone in a boat on the open sea 
is this visual metaphor that that Franco would return to again and again and again to to uh, demonstrate visually mm-hmm. exactly what he saw this character as. In other words, you're you're mm-hmm. you're watching this person who feels alone, completely at sea, with nothing that can be counted upon, attempting mm-hmm. to find her way to shore, or mm-hmm. in some instances, mm-hmm. not trying to find her way yeah. to shore, perfectly yeah. content to drift out to sea. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot of imagery in this movie, and it. Don't get me wrong. Some of it, some of what I'm saying about thinking that this movie is just a fractured vision of what really occurred from her point of view, is really the only way to read certain sequences in the movie, yeah. and not kind of roll your eyes and go, "What yeah. in the hell are you talking about?" Right. right. Because <clears throat> although they are visually, what we're talking about specifically, I, there there are a number of things to talk about mm. as far as. Um, the reality of this. Well, because, yeah, because if you, I'm sorry I'll let you get that, but okay. I was going to say that, that because there comes a point in the film where if you take it at face value that what's happening is what's happening, uh, her character, who is never named, but we just think of as Mrs. Johnson, yeah. you know, uh, she's never be- given becomes, a name, becomes almost a supernatural figure. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I know that's, that, that's, that, that's kind of where I was going because the idea becomes, since she's never named, we, ha- we have mm. no idea what her, what her first name is. We have no clue at all. It's like the female Clint Eastwood. It's like the, well, the woman without a name. You know, so. it's, yes, it's this uh, wraith of death mm. moving through, taking vengeance on people yeah, who like may, you know. High Plains Drifterist. It's sort of. <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, as a filmmaker, Franco is painting these people as scumbags. Sure, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, they got some issues, as we see in their. You know, in the individual seduction slash murder murder scenes. Yeah, I, I, once again, I'll quote Stephen Thrower. He says it's typical of the sly, morally ambivalent Franco that the victims are portrayed as a bunch of pompous, pompous, hot-headed gas bags yeah. who drive Doctor Johnson to suicide as much through their hectoring aggression as their rejection of his methodology. We can't really sympathize with Johnson's, you know, hideous experiments, hmm. nor with his withdrawal from his wife into his own private misery, but neither can we side with the odious medical experts who hound him to his grave. Yeah. The only sympathetic character in the film is Soledad Miranda's wife character, mm-hmm. who murders repeatedly. So the if you're attempting to graft some kind of moral, uh, mm-hmm. moral uh, rectitude onto mm-hmm. the character, it's really hard to do, mm-hmm. uh, especially... When uh, Franco goes out of his way in the murder depict, when we, when he depicts his own character's murder at Soledad Miranda's hands, mm-hmm. uh, it devolves into a scene of abject torture, where it turns out that the character that uh, just Franco is playing, one of the doctors that she's murdering, seems to be a masochist, yeah. and she revels in the sadistic, in just real sadistic glee, inflicting pain and agony on him before she kills him. Yeah. So there are no, uh, and this this uh, this I think is a strength of the movie. I'll I'll explain I'll explain why there are no good and bad people in this movie. There is simple there are simply a series of mm-hmm. miserable people who are miserable in different ways, mm-hmm. who are on collision course because of the 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 hideous the, their various hideous actions and in a weird way she is this until until she starts wreaking vengeance she is this void at the center of the story mm-hmm. observing mm-hmm. and then when she turns to action she becomes just as gray a character or and i mean as a murderer i mean we would have to call her you know a black character, not necessarily mm. a gray character, mm. even though we do find the people that she's killing to be hideous right. people. Yeah, um, this moral, 
morally ambiguous kind of way of looking at what she's doing is uh, it's part of it's part of one of the things that I, I find uh, most interesting about the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and it's something that <laughs> that Franco played with a lot yeah. uh, throughout throughout these very personal movies and even in some of the unpersonal movies where he's able to work these kinds of ideas into some, you know, rather standard kind of, you know, action and and erotic films where the idea would be to uh, paint these characters as, you know, first in very broad strokes and then through uh, very specific actions trying to kind of draw uh, some, some, uh, some detail in on them that would, make you uh, see them as uh, different from what you might necessarily have thought of at the beginning of the narrative. And uh, in this movie, what we have here are a series of murders conducted by uh, the vengeful wife. Um, I, I, I would love to have an idea of whether or not the character uh, that she's playing was supposed to have a name or not. Yeah. Because if she yeah. wasn't supposed to have a name at all, that that impresses me because mm-hmm. that points that points directly to Franco, who, let's be honest, was the kind of person who would think down this road, mm-hmm. was trying to make her that blank void who's filled by vengeance. Mm-hmm. She's this person who really was just a reflection of her husband, and with him dead and gone now, mm-hmm. she just fills herself with vengeance. And once she's done, that's all there. That's all there was. Yeah, it's this this glass into which you could pour anything and what gets poured into it is hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, we should probably talk about the murders mm-hmm. one at a time. First, uh, first, the first one she goes after, she, she positions herself to meet each of these people mm-hmm. in the guise of uh, being a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And she changes her look. She wears wigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wears different clothing and things of this nature that uh, helps her present herself as the most enticing that she can be to each of these individuals, and with Howard Vernon's character, he, uh, I do love that he is he's we're introduced to him in this particular bar, mm-hmm. uh, holding forth on how the younger generation is just, just you know, moralistically garbage, yeah. and then yeah. the very next thing he does yeah. is goes and hits on a much younger woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, ah, oh, so yeah. why are you in this bar again, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that that Franco's definitely. Uh, Wants to paint this character as the maybe the head head of head hypocrite of all the hypocrites. You yeah, know, it's very possible. Yeah. Uh, well, she of course entices him back, and by the way, we are we we are gonna to the to the extent that you can spoil this movie, mm-hmm. this movie with so little plot. That yeah, <laughs> we're gonna talk about all of the murders to one degree or another uh, because I I think I know I have something to say about mm-hmm. most of them. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure you do as well. Sure. So uh, if you're if you're if you're wanting to see this movie without what I would blandly refer to as spoilers mm-hmm, <laughs> maybe yeah. come back to us later yeah. but yeah. I don't really think we can spoil this movie uh, and I think that uh, hearing us talk about it all the way through might actually entice you to seek mm-hmm. it out in a way mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. otherwise you would not but what we have here in the first murder is pretty straightforward but it really the, here's my complaint about this murder first of all of course they end up in bed together naked naked uh, naked Howard Vernon Mm-hmm. Uh, ends up getting his throat slit and mm-hmm. his genitals removed. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, uh, there needed to be a lot more blood on that bed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot more blood on that bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have visions of how there should be so much blood that the note she leaves behind on his chest mm-hmm. 
would be partially covered in blood. That's mm-hmm. kind of that's my yeah. vision of how it, sh- it should kind of look. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, if what we're looking at is a fractured, psychedelic, warped vis- vision of this through her memory, mm-hmm. then there wouldn't be that much blood because, uh, or maybe there wouldn't be that much blood because she's reject. You know, she's kind of rejecting the the more hideous, gory bits of what she's doing. She's taking vengeance she mm-hmm. is doing something that she sees as righteous mm-hmm. and therefore it wouldn't be this horribly yeah. messy thing mm-hmm. but that in other words that's one one way of looking sure. at it yeah and it, should we back up maybe throughout the rest throughout the rest of the film as she conducts she conducts these murders we should point out that uh, everyone knows that the husband is dead that he committed suicide <laughs> the other characters make mention of it <laughs> but yes if we're to take that literally then somehow his wife yes. has absconded with her husband's corpse <laughs> and is keeping it in their home. Ah, yes. I was wondering when we were going to talk about the corpse in the room. Let's, 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 let's talk about the corpse in the room. We've got, yeah. her, we've got Howard yes. Vernon dead. Let's talk about the dead husband. Yes. What the I hell? Don't, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's just it. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Yes, because you say is it is it is it clumsy script or bad translations or something? But where where the the police refer to her husband is being dead. Yeah, right. Well, not not just the cops, but also the doctors. Yeah, the doctors that yeah. she's now taking vengeance on. Yeah. They know he's dead mm-hmm. too. And as a matter, you know, as a matter of fact, they them make, making mention of it means mm-hmm. that that's general knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now okay? we now we have seen in Franco films and other European thrillers, and as we we know that it can kind of be something of the. Like Universal had its Universal Land, you know, Euro Horror Land is, a, and sometimes they, you know, it's where the police get in the car and drive off and leave the killer's body dead. <laughs> and, you know, we've seen yeah. that. Is this just a world where after, if the wife says, "Can I just keep my husband's body?" They say, "Sure," you know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> or and here's my here's my alternate way of thinking about uh-huh. it. I don't think she. I don't think that in reality she actually had his body. I would agree with you until the until final the frame final scene. totally turns that. Yeah. Yes, yes, and I think as, that's just it. If she had stolen the body, mm-hmm. then it's like super creepy. It adds a level of creep to oh, everything. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But the de- the problem then is the depiction of the body slowly deteriorating is miserably poorly done. Yes, it is. It's like it's it's like the, it's like uh, to the point that you're not totally positive it's intentional or is it just bad makeup showing up under right, under right. like got too close like the camera got too close and we're seeing makeup that's not supposed to be seen on there. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the, it's one of those things where um, it is it is if we're just if these are just her memories of this if that's what we're seeing is this through her mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then Okay, so he still looks that way when she's done with her job, mm-hmm. but only to her does he look that way. Yeah, yeah, I see, right. That I, that mm-hmm. that I'm willing to go with, mm-hmm. but that's something I may be kind of pushing well, onto the movie that not wasn't necessarily meant. I don't know. See, a more linear thinking director who who gave a, who or a director who actually gave a damn about you know <laughs> these kinds of ideas. Yes, would have shown something. He would have probably shown a quick scene of her digging up the body. And then he would have shown at some point what you're talking about. He would have shown a reflection in a mirror where you would see that the body is actually decaying, and and where you realize that you oh, just that would be nice. It. it would be yeah. nice, but that's not the, what Franco's going to give you. Yeah. He's yeah. you know he's he's you know so so listen. There's a great quote. I'll go ahead and throw a drop in here because I was going to say someplace. But the interview with Franco, there's a, a nice interview with him on its own severance disc. Yeah, he has a quote that I love on there, just because it says so much about him. And 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 there's and there's definite layers of truth in there too. But it's uh, he says, I came to the conclusion at some point. 
that normal people don't understand film. <laughs> As they say, and, you know, he said, he said, I, they, yes, I love what he says. About he this. says they sit in the chair and they say, I like this. I don't like that. That's the character I'm going to sympathize with. That's the character. That's the bad guy. Yeah. You know, and so totally you, that totally applies to his approach to film and to here. You can see yeah. exactly where he's coming from. Which is, this is more a mood and tone yeah. piece yeah. than it is a strict narrative. Yeah, you've got to look beyond it and the way you look beyond a painting or a, yeah. or a poem. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's, you're supposed to approach it that way. How does yeah. this, it, it, how does it make you feel? Yeah. How yeah. does this piece, mm-hmm. how does this make mm-hmm. you feel? Not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, let's pick apart the, the, the plot or let's pick apart the dialogue. That's not it. All of these things are of a whole. They're an 80-minute mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. What did it do to you? Mm-hmm. What was its effect on you? Mm-hmm. And that and, he, and he's right because mm-hmm. that's not the vast majority. That's not ninety percent of the no. people in this world's view of how to right. watch a film. Right. They want a story told, and they want to understand the story. Correct. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I like that too. Me too. Me too. But I also like different yes, types. I, I of like film. the things that per, I like being perplexed sometimes. You know, if I, I I like I like having my my expectations it, undermined. Yeah. If I feel like I'm being perplexed, not by incompetence on the filmmaker's part, right? By, but yeah, but but just by the fact that this is how they wanted to make this film, and this is, and and what I might be interested in or or might they, the, you know, they would like my, they want me to be befuddled to some right. degree. They want me to to wonder, you know. About, right. I mean, and let's be, let's be clear, ninety six or ninety seven people out of a hundred are going to just have no use for this film. Oh yeah. Right, I mean, like sure. zero yeah. use. Yeah. Because it not just because it doesn't tell tell what they would consider to be a coherent narrative, you mm-hmm. know that there's not a, a beginning, middle, and end mm-hmm. with some you know some drive or some some point quote mm-hmm. unquote point. Mm-hmm. That's not this kind of film. This the, the, this is very much the kind of thing that you almost have to be a cinema fanatic mm-hmm. to appreciate. Yes. Oh yeah. You have to be not a normal person. Second murder is the one that is gonna is gonna break most people immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one where it's the uh, it's the female doctor, mm-hmm. and she is uh, the she's clearly a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Johnson entices her back to her to her apartment, and they disrobe. They begin the those lesbian gropings that mm-hmm. we're all there to see, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then. Ms. Johnson smothers her with a pillow. Yes. But, but it's not a normal pillow. No, no. It is an inflatable pillow. And I got to say, this is both a visual triumph yes. and a narrative flaw. Yes. You, you just said it perfectly, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing because 
the pillow has a transparent se- transparent section in the center of it, and so yeah. while strangling, I mean, while smothering her with this pillow, which would be impossible, mm-hmm. we are allowed to see her face yeah. being mashed by the plastic inflatable pillow as she's killed. Absolutely a fascinating visual yeah. image for a murder. <laughs> And completely ridiculous <laughs> simultaneously. Yeah, you said it perfectly. I mean, I, I literally wrote in my notes, I wrote like, I don't think I've ever seen this in another film. It's brilliant and it's impossible. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it it's, it's, yeah. And, and, and here is, of course, you know, Franco's facing this artistic decision. It's kind of like the, um, uh, when you have the truth of the legend, print the legend, they, sort of that uh. version of that. It's like when I've got what's realistic or what just looks great. You know, he, yeah, he, he, yeah. I'm going to go with what looks great. And once again, it it, it is one of the it's one of the, <clears throat> the the first moments in the movie where you kind of have to go: Am I seeing a strict version mm. of what supposedly mm. happened, mm. or is this being shown to me? Is, is this uh, kind of the unreliable narrator come to life? Is this being shown to me through the memories of someone whose specific uh, impressions were being given as opposed to a real version of yeah. what we're supposed to have seen. Well, if you start asking it then, then just wait to get to the third murder. Then you're really going to start asking those questions. Well, okay. Because <laughs> it's the third murder where it starts to take this turn into the, okay, this is either suddenly she's either, we're either in suddenly supernatural land or uh, Well, let's talk about the third murder. Go ahead. Yeah, because, and this is the point where I, where it finally clicked on my slow mind realized this was a, a, a sort of remake of Diabolical Dr. Z because when I saw this years ago I first saw it before I saw Diabolical Dr. Z oh, okay. of course we did an episode on that and Beyond Nashi in the past so I've seen it you know within the last few years um, so early on in the film as you as you kind of get to used to doing with Franco films you start thinking am I seeing this you start thinking you know are these are these themes are you know what are the themes I'm going to see here that Franco right, likes right. to play around with and so I was asking myself is Frank did Franco ever make this kind of you know revenge type film did he explore this in, in in other films as far as the ones that I've seen but it wasn't until we get to the third murder and finally it clicked I was like oh my god it's Diabolical Dr. Z because this third murder does the same thing that Dr. Z does that did so effectively that we were really impressed with is the way that it totally flips the whole uh, female being stalked by a killer thing that's such a, yeah. a motif in so many horror films. Yeah, it was a cliche. Yeah, and, and, and it did it in the in Diabolical Dr. Z, too, is, is, is you get to the... First of all, you get to the, the... By the time she's stalking her victim, the victim is aware of her and knows that, you know, he's at, because of the other doctors being killed, he's starting to know who she is and... He's being he's being followed, pursued by her, and right. and but we start to get these scenes where uh, you know she appears and disappears in different places, and and just the whole bizarre nature of this small, slight little woman stalking this <laughs> guy who's like twice her her height, you know, and that yeah. he's terrified of her, and then he thinks he shut her outside, and he turns around, and there she is lying on his bed, completely dressed in a different way with a wig on, you know, something that's really logically impossible for her to have done, right. You know, and I think it, I think, uh, whereas Dr. Z made such a great use of the black and white and the shadows to do this, this stalking scene, you know, here Franco makes great use of the color and scenery he's got to work with, but there's so much of her 
you see her so many times, she's just a reflection in the mirror. You know, you don't see her directly on. So and, th- and this is th- this. There's some real artistic beauty in this sequence. Yeah. But you're right. If you were to stand Paul yeah. Mueller, the actor she's stalking, yeah. Yeah. next to <laughs> Soledad Miranda, yeah. it's like she. He's like you know three feet. You know, yeah. it feels like he's three feet taller yeah. than she yeah. is. But yeah. I mean, you know, it's just it's just you know a, a visual way of looking at this makes you go, I am. I mean, he could snap her like a twig. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so again, it kind of goes back to what you're saying. Is this her seeing it how she sees herself? That may be not how she really killed him, but is she seeing it? She's this angel of death and that she has this, this you know, she has this supernatural power over, you know, because she has the right the right on her side. She has a, a you know, vengeance. and. Well, see, that's know. just it. This is the scene. You're right, because this third murder is essentially kind of the, the angel of death moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like the initial, the first murder mm. is... It's basically it's 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 almost what you would term you know a decade later as a standard slasher murder mm. where it ties back to bed you know you know it, it's it's sex and death right mm. next to each other. Mm-hmm. The second murder is you know takes it a, a, a depraved step further in that it's a homosexual relationship, mm-hmm. a homosexual sexual tryst yeah. that mm-hmm. is then being is then uh, turned into. Uh, a murder. So mm-hmm. you, you start off with one layer of depravity. You go to a, a, a darker layer of depravity, at least as far as society sees mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's almost as if the thing that has to be accomplished here is she has to almost transcend the physicality that she has yeah. to accomplish her goal. Mm-hmm. And that is what we're seeing is that now yeah. we're moving from, you know, each death is very different. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not like they build on each other in, a, in any kind of way, except that with each one, it's mm-hmm. it's like she's gaining power. Yeah. Yeah. And becoming, yeah, exactly. and becoming yeah. this spirit of vengeance mm-hmm. in this weird way. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where, yeah, you know, the fact that she's being seen in in reflections and then just suddenly is there mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, you know, you, you could call it, you could call it a lot of things. A lot of people would call it, you know, sloppy filmmaking mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or bad editing mm-hmm. or or silly or ridiculous or, yeah, or right. not 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 well thought out. But at the same time, the entire sequence is built around the idea that he's terrified of her. Yeah, which physically he shouldn't be. Right. But he is nevertheless, and it is the aspect of the of her seeming to be everywhere at once, and then in a place where she has no possible ability to have been. Yeah, and and or and also is his guilt possible guilt giving right. her power? His possible right. guilt over his involvement with because her he's death. really nervous. I yeah. mean, he's worked yeah. up about this. You know, he's mm-hmm. really worked up about this. Mm-hmm. So that. It's it's kind of fascinating, and you know if if you're, you know if you haven't already stepped away from this movie, this <laughs> maybe this scene would do it. If the pillow scene didn't didn't, <laughs> didn't push you away, right. this one might do it as well, but in a different in a different way because you're you're once again looking at if you're looking at it with a literal mind, it's just mm. not gonna work for you to a degree. Yeah. But oh boy, <laughs> if you stick around to that fourth murder. Yeah. Where where the where the director himself gets put in the chair? Yeah, yeah. We should point out that once again, just Franco. Mm-hmm. It's good to be your own casting yes, director. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, Franco plays the uh, only victim victim to be tortured, uh, and this is where we were talking about the whole sadomasochistic thing mm-hmm. works out mm-hmm. here. So, what you have is a a, a thrashing uh, a thrashing victim tied to a chair, while 
let's just call her Lady Vengeance at this point. Yeah, right, yeah. Is it, I mean, she really sells the viciousness of what she's doing, even though the film cannot, you know, we, we, right. we can't really have yeah. what I would call, you know, like slasher level <laughs> special effects or, you know, violent, uh, you know, cuttings or thrustings or anything of that right. nature. But what's being put on screen is still disturbing as hell. Uh, it's, you know, there's... There's a there's a little bit of blood here and there, but it is really being sold by the the two of them really responding to each other as torture and tortured. Yeah, uh, it's it's an it's an effective scene, and it's really kind of uh, it's it's it, it's disturbing as hell, and it feels like you know once you get to this scene, it's like yeah we've been I guess we've been ramping up to this, haven't well, we? Well, also, and it feels strange to say based on what she's done prior to this point in the film, but I, you have to say I think I think this fourth. Murder is where she crosses a line because she kills his wife. Yes. Who did nothing to her. And that, I think, is is kind of how what's supposed to affect kind of from here on out through the rest of the film is that she's she's gone, she has gone really too far at yeah. this point, you know. And it's like if, if you had uh, allowed yourself as a, as a, as a viewer mm-hmm. to find yourself identifying yeah. <laughs> with this character... That should be the that should be the point where you you pull back from it yeah. and realize that even if we're just seeing her vision of this, her vision of this still still yeah. paints her very badly. Yeah. Still paints yeah. her as mm. a monster. Mm. And uh, I, I, you're you're right. I think that um, I, I, I'm glad it's there because it does immediately put you front and center in that there there are so many movies built around. I mean, let's just talk about this. It's an entire subgenre. Mm-hmm. There's an entire subgenre of film built around the wronged woman mm-hmm. taking bloody vengeance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah. know, yeah. there's a there's a blue bajillion of them. Yeah. And those movies are built around the audience getting their jollies off righteous, deserved mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. Uh, everything that is done to these monsters who usually raped the woman or mm. sometimes killed a member of their family or mm. killed one of their children or mm. did whatever. Yeah. Everything's justified. Mm-hmm. Everything. And if that is the feeling, if that's what you've been lured into with this movie up to that point, it's the killing of the wife mm-hmm. who had literally nothing to do with yeah. her husband's death. Yeah. That should jolt you back to reality and make you realize, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I was walking down the road of identifying with this woman and have feelings of sympathetic mm-hmm leanings in her direction and that is not right yeah, yeah. Uh, i i've been fooled by yeah. cinema yeah to once right. again identify with a monster yeah which <laughs> happens a lot yes and there's a whole lot of people that i think franco would uh, probably point to and 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 yeah. turn up his nose at who do that all the time where yeah. we are i mean if you watch dirty harry mm-hmm. and you're above the age of 25 yeah and you think Dirty Harry's the good guy? Yeah. <laughs> I got news for you. Yeah. There ain't no good guys in the movie. Right, yeah. There aren't. Yeah. Some of the side characters, some of the side cops mm-hmm. could have been good guys. Mm-hmm. But the movie ain't, ain't about them. Right. It's about mm-hmm. an asshole scumbag cop mm-hmm. that the movie tells you is this throughout and a murdering psychopath. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. Dirty Harry. Yeah. So the fact that the movie has you feeling as if Dirty Harry is a good guy mm-hmm. is a trick of cinema. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's five sequels after it, so of yeah, course, right. clearly he's the hero, right? Yeah. <laughs> but 
Well, I, 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 well, you know, we, we, we could have a long conversation oh, about sure. the dirty hair. I have okay. no idea why I brought the dirty hair. <laughs> but I, I love that Magnum Force, one of the one of the sequels, mm. directly directly attacks the idea of mm. seeing a, you know killer cop as yeah. a hero. Right. But nevertheless, if we're talking about if we're talking about our personal Spanish lady vengeance here, yeah, uh, we're we're talking about a woman who, if you felt yourself sympathetic to her actions, that murder of the wife. I wonder how many people focus on the murder of the wife, or even think about it, or remember it. The fact that she's not—I think, I think it's—I think it's kind of cleverly played in there to almost like people almost to look past because yeah. they're just kind of wanting to see what's going to happen to this guy, right. they, and because she's not in the first of the film, you know, it doesn't set her up as a character, which makes it even more likely that if right. you're not really paying attention to what's just happened, you know, that you you could almost just you know gloss it over as as, as another body, you know. It's true. It's the fifth murder. Yeah. No matter how you slice it. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that has absolutely no justification. Right. So, I was interested to know what Stephen Thrower thought about the film. Mm-hmm. And he's not a particular fan of it. Uh, he, he does not rate this particular one very highly. He's impressed by Soledad Miranda, mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. you would expect. He says that she killed in ecstasy is enjoyably bizarre, but it would have benefited enormously from another 10 minutes of character development and a bit more attention to detail. Slender narratives can cross the line into malnourishment, and this is one such instance. <laughs> we said it earlier, waffer thin. <laughs> oh, waffer thin. Uh, um, I have to admit, uh, well, you know, it's I, I don't I don't see I don't see the reason to think of this one as lesser than some of the others. No, me either. Uh, the, the the enjoyment I get out of this one, the weird, you know, vengeful tone poem that mm-hmm. I see it being. Mm-hmm is very uh, it's, it's oddly satisfying to me in a way that yeah. is kind of surprising mm-hmm. to a degree mm-hmm. now now here's the thing I do have the, the one major caveat I have the one thing that I think the film that does take me out of the film every time is an egregiously misuse of misuse of music mm-hmm. uh, the, the score most of the time mm-hmm. does not fit. Yeah. the movie as it should be played. Mm-hmm. It's a little too jaunty and yeah. happy. It's that jazz that kind of, yeah, jazzy sort of with, you know, thing that Franco loved, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, not, not all of it is poorly, yeah. you know, poorly situated within yeah. the film. And and, and the but, Severin disc includes the soundtrack uh, with a couple other soundtracks. Yeah. And if you just listen to the music, the music is cool. Oh, I mean, no, if you just listen is, to it, it's really cool. But great. you're talking about, yeah, you're just talking about where it's placed. In placed in the film right. yeah. where it's almost working against mm-hmm. The images on screen at times. Mm-hmm. There are a few. There are a few points in the movie where it's. I mean, it's done on perfect. Yeah. yeah. But there are more than a few. It's like more than <laughs> twice the time that. <laughs> yeah. For every for every great scene where you're like, oh, this this is very effective. There are two others where you're going, they should probably have just chosen something different there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the the quality of the music right. at all that is the the placement within the mm-hmm. type of story that we're talking about where the the. Uh, tone of the music and the tone of the film are uh, working at cross purposes. So, I will say that. But, um, now that you've revisited this film on the high, high mm. definition of <laughs> uh, has your opinion of it changed? Do you remember if you liked it more or less this time? You know, my my feeling was that maybe uh, I, I liked it more the first time. Okay. Um, but... I don't remember being like I don't remember having the problems with it that I did this time around, but I still like the film. You know, mm-hmm. I still enjoyed the filming, and I and I do think that of the 
Soledad Miranda films that I've, I've seen, you know, I do like it more than Vampiros Lesbos or Dracula, actually. Um, I like it, you know, better than both those films. I've not seen The, the Devil Came from Akasava. I've not seen that yet. It's, so it's, it's more a, of a comedy, I think, it's, right? It's, it's kind of fun, but it's, yeah. not one that, yeah. it's not one that I find myself desiring to go back to mm-hmm. very frequently. Um, but I, you know, I, I, but again, it, it's, it's that whole thing of, of having to really deeply analyze a film in preparation for a podcast. Yeah. You know, you, you begin to pick it apart. So, I still like the film, and, and I probably give it a... I, I came away giving it a seven, really, because of Soledad Miranda. Okay, I probably yeah. would have given it a six without her without her, her yeah. strength in there. She, she definitely raises it to another another level. Um, but it's a film that I, I still enjoy, and I, I, I think I'll watch it again from time to time, because it's, 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 it's definitely one that I really like. Uh, or, you know, that I do like, I do enjoy. I think, I think the good things about it are, are really strong. Well, now, the first time I saw this movie was on the uh, the previous DVD that was put out by Synapse years and years and years ago. And um, it w- th- this my viewing of this film the first time was one of the... It, this was one of the first Franco movies of this type that kind of opened my eyes to what I had kind of been mm-hmm. dismissing mm-hmm. for a very long time up to that point. So uh, revisiting it now was was very eye-opening because I've seen so many more Franco films since yeah. the last time I saw well, same here this too, movie, yeah. right? Yeah. So I almost feel as if I've got a kind of, uh, I don't know, a well of, a well of uh, information and a well of experience with mm-hmm. his work to kind mm-hmm. of drop on to mm-hmm. kind of see this through a different... Through, through, through a prism that paints it up against mm-hmm. the wall in a very strange way and in a very different way mm-hmm. to the point where I think that in a lot of ways I, I, I enjoyed it more because I have more knowledge mm-hmm. of his style and his, mm-hmm. his, way of, his way of working and how these movies came together. Even. Yeah. even that has a bit of an influence yeah. on how I look at the movie. Yeah. But at the same time, the question at a certain point for me becomes how many times can I watch a variation on this particular poem mm-hmm. and still enjoy it. And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I, I still don't know the answer to that because the Lord knows I've not seen all of his movies and I, mm-hmm. I don't know that I ever will. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I find being able to see through what he's so often doing, I don't find it, let's put it this way, I don't find it cloying and I don't find it I, it doesn't. It doesn't push me away. Mm-hmm. It tends to, and I hate to say this, just not as much as at the beginning. But it has a tendency to draw me a little nearer and make me a little more curious. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to understand that desire that a lot of people went through when they were when they were seeing these things on rough bootlegs in the '90s, mm-hmm. which is that each new Franco film of this type kind of only sharpened the appetite for more made you want to you know like search around and find more of these things to see if by experiencing more of this type of his filmmaking there were th- those hidden depths that mm. sometimes you can you can glean from the mm. piece itself mm. that there might be ways to pick up more because you've seen more of this ex- of this type of filmmaking from him and so I'm starting to understand yeah. how seeing more than one of these things expands your understanding or your way of looking at yeah. the thing. It, it, it's like it's like doing deep study of a, of a literary work. Yeah. And then moving from that literary work to another literary, literary work by the same author yeah. and, and seeing, okay, repeated themes, repeated ideas, yeah. but an approach that is either uh, fresher 
or more experimental, mm -hmm. or at times simply uh, built out of a, of a, of a sense of uh, a, a gaining of wisdom over time, and therefore not just rectifying your vision of the things you're playing on, but, but how your feelings about those things have changed as time has passed. And so uh, I guess... <sighs> I guess this is kind of a long way of me going around to say that it's almost like reading the same kind of poet poetry from a poet who continues to work in the same field or in the same genre is the wrong word, but a poet who's growing and changing over time and mm. therefore seeing his old, seeing his latter work yeah. reflects in a very interesting way on the, the, the work done in his youth. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finding myself seeing so many different things. Uh, the way he would play, you know, the, 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 in this film here, it's it's five years after Diabolical Dr. Z, and he's already essentially kind of remaking his mm -hmm. movie. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. changing details, and he's, yeah. Yeah. he's but he's also very carefully removing things from the narrative mm -hmm. that he sees weren't necessary to get across what he wanted to get across. Yeah. I don't need all this connective tissue. Yeah. It's okay for it to be there, but the the viewer will surmise the things that aren't there because we've moved from one thing to the next. They don't have to be shown all the pieces in between. Mm -hmm. And so you're watching this man's craft and his way of attacking these stories and the way he's telling them change over time in a way that becomes more economical, but also harder to fathom if you are unaware of the earlier yeah. piece yeah. or of the fact that he's well aware of how to construct these things. Right. But to him, those are the boring bits and I'm going to leave them out because we can mm. all realize, okay, yes, this is what happens next, right? Okay, mm -hmm. well, let's go ahead and get to the piece next instead of wasting time getting from A to B. We can skip B. We just go to A to C because we know what B was. Mm. And so that's that's my long, well, my long ranting way of mm. saying... The more Franco you watch, mm -hmm. if you're of a certain type, the more you want to see. Yeah, and uh, this one just emphasizes that for me again. So, so I do have to ask you what What did you make of the ending? Is it is it is it sloppy or is it or is it Franco being deliberately both? Okay, yeah. Uh, it is. It's clunky. Yeah. Because first of all, I'm impressed by the suddenness of yeah. the car going off off the road. Mm. That's, and it's not lost on us that her last film ended with her dying in a car wreck. That's really, yeah. And that's <laughs> really kind of a horrifying thing yeah. to take from this when you yeah. know that it was her last movie and that she died in a car accident on yeah. a road of that type. Yeah, yeah. Driven by her husband, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, who was a race car driver. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> it's like, oh, God, man, what a, I mean, mm -hmm. their car got hit. And their car, they were going around a blind curve. Yeah. And they got hit mm -hmm. in such a way that Although the husband got injured, yeah, she was she was killed. Yeah, I mean she yeah. lived for several hours after the fact, but I mean she got yeah. she got messed up yeah. badly. Yeah, and it's a horrifying thing to know that that's the final that's our that's our yeah. that's our final image of this actress, mm -hmm. and it mirrors her actual death. It's terrifying. Yeah. So we see her with the body. She's got her husband's body in yeah. the car. Yeah. At this yeah. point, we're really questioning. As you like you said, you know, is it real? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we see sort of a far away shot of, of her where it looks like she's the only one in the car and, and, and you know you don't see the body next to her in the car and right. you're thinking like okay now we have our answer it's the been her the whole time there, yeah. but then at the very end of the film the police when they you know after a car has gone off the road and the police run up to it and they look in they're like you know 
it's it's Dr. Johnson and his wife. They're both dead, you know. So they're seeing the body in there, which means the body was really there. So that's where you kind of slap your forward and say, like, okay, I don't know if you're deliberately messing with his Jess or if this is just kind or, of or is that clumsy. the way the, or is that the way the dialogue was in the German version, but maybe not, but not exactly in the French is it, is it version. Just a mistranslation. Or, yeah. Yes, I mean maybe they just said it's. They might just be saying it's it's the it's the it's just a woman, and you know maybe he meant for, it, and then somebody screwed up in the. In the dialogue Who knows? dubbing, yeah. So we'll never know. But anyway, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, a very interesting ending there. But it definitely leaves you just wondering what what was really intended there. What we're supposed to, what was what was. The, the I, truth. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I have to say that, um, yeah, the ending is weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, the fact that the ending is weird. The fi- first of all, if they were go- if he wanted a weird ending for this movie, yeah, yeah. he was going to have to find a weird thing. I mean, something that was going to top, you know the sight of uh, a naked Soledad Miranda grinding right. against what's supposed to be a, a rotting corpse in her yeah. own bed. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to, got to do something different from that. Yeah. Well, how are we going to top it? I don't know. Let's figure it out. So, I, if, if you're looking to cap your narrative in, in, mm. a, in, a, in a, you know, an exploitation, you know, surrealistic thriller, I don't know, mm. what are you going to do? Yeah. Interesting choice, mm. but, yeah, I mean, like I say, I I fully expected even even though it had been so long, I didn't remember exactly mm-hmm. the details of the ending. Yeah. So yeah. I was like you probably yeah. were too, going, "Aha! Ah, this is yeah. where we're going to find out the body yeah. wasn't." Yeah. And then the dialogue, you know, throws that out the window. Yeah. So the question is, was he aiming for the the was he aiming for? Okay, you don't see the body, right? But the dialogue tells you the body was there. In other words, was he trying to play yeah. Yeah. play with both with with both ideas at mm-hmm. the same time simultaneously? Yeah. And show you know show, you know w- 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 I would love to know his thought. I'd love to like walk, have him walk me through that final yeah. sequence and go, okay, what was in your head? Well, why yeah. why that? Why why would this? Or, or did you even know that they were going to end it this way? I mean, was this yeah. one that you know you're just like whatever, and then you, <laughs> yeah, you know, just, now you're looking yeah. at it and going, well, why did they end it with that? <laughs> that would be my question. <laughs> we're not going to get that, no. but it would be nice to know. So I have to ask you just a couple more questions, real sure. quick here. Well, uh, mainly based on the fact that you've seen. You have seen more Franco than I've seen, although there's still so much you haven't seen. But I'm curious if you've seen... I was reading about, uh, or just looking up the stuff about Fred Williams that plays her husband. Right, the German Um, actor. Yeah, and it's interesting, I thought, it goes... Franco says in the interview on the disc, he really seems to be very adamantly believe... And now he liked he liked working with Fred Williams, obviously, because he used him in several films, and he, he said he liked it. But for this particular role... He, he wasn't right. He, he says he would have wished he could have gotten Kinski. He says he yeah. says I think Kinski would have really elevated that role. And I can see what he's saying. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it would be the perfect role for Kinski. I mean, you know, essentially, well-meaning mad scientist, you know, driven to despair yeah. who mm-hmm. commits suicide. Okay, yeah, Kinski. Yeah. He, he could do that in an afternoon. Okay, sure. Yeah. He could probably even play a rotting corpse, really Kinski-esque, you know. <laughs> and like just, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> oh my god, I you know I thought about that, but yeah, 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 okay. So these films, though, that I noticed that he made with that Franco made Fred Williams, it, it was I was curious about just to see him if because I, I realized he made a Mabuza film with Fred Williams called The yeah. Vengeance of Doctor Mabuza. Is that one that you've? That is one seen? that I've seen. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I I remember enjoying it. Mm-hmm. I remember it being. Um, Remember what I was saying about let's you know let's not worry too too hard about the uh, the yeah. the narrative yeah. the the, the, right. the, the narrative uh, cohesion the the mm. the pieces that would connect this the, yeah. the tissue that would connect these various scenes mm. uh, that's my memory of that I wrote up on the blog I wrote up about that film did you okay okay <laughs> okay I, f- I found my uh, my years old 
uh, write-up of The Vengeance of Dr. Mabusa from 1972. I was on a bit of a Franco binge at the time. I said, uh, okay, everyone's favorite wooden Indian, Jack Taylor, plays Mabusa <laughs> or Farkas or whatever damn name the dub you come across labels him, <laughs> holed up in a sinister, sinisterly lit lab consisting in one room with some random computer-like objects and a basement hallway with a few makeshift cells. Mabusa slash Farkas plots to... Uh, I can't actually remember what he exactly was trying to accomplish, but it involves sending out his butch lesbian helper and his monstrous creature Andros to kidnap gorgeous women to make their fathers or husbands do something or another. I think it has something to do with building a death ray, but don't quote me. And of course, there is a character named Orloff that figures in the tale, but don't get too attached to him. Anyway, we have the bad Dr. Mabusa slash Farkas assembling his victims... At uh, the same time, we watch the local sheriff and his deputy lackadaisically investigate the disappearance of the women that we are that we see car- uh, see carted off. The film seems to be set in the desert southwest of the United States, with several mentions of escaping over the border to Mexico tossed around. This made this is made almost believably visually, with some clever framing to crop out obvious European locales. But I have no idea what ocean they are near. <laughs> is it supposed to be the Pacific? If so, the coast is is way wrong. What am I do- what am I doing here? It doesn't matter. We're in Franco land at the edge of this inland sea, possibly. Uh, there are several supposedly touching scenes of a dis- discon- uh, d- disconsolate and depressed Andros dumping the occasional corpse and weeping like a big wuss. <laughs> Poor guy, I can understand. I often fall in love with the helpless prisoners of my overbearing boss. The ones he makes me kill. Uh, The strangest element in this strange movie is the two policemen. They're dressed like they stepped off the set of a TV western, although they they drive a crappy, overheating sedan and don't seem to carry guns. I wonder if the cowboy sheriff character was a nod to the McLeod TV character or Franco just had them dressed that way for no good reason at all. Did Franco ever make a western? I'm I'm rambling at this point in the vlog, right? Much time is wasted in the vengeance of Dr. Mabusa watching the police fail to figure anything out as the evil master plan that makes little sense implodes in the usual way that poorly thought out death ray plans do. (laughs) As is typical during this period of his career, Franco manages to conjure an okay story with very, very little in the way of resources. I think there may have been four separate interiors, a couple of other outdoor locations, and a couple of cars used. All of Jack Taylor's scenes could have been filmed in one or two days as he never leaves the lab set and no one seems to have more than two sets of clothes. (laughs) This is low-budget, something-out-of-nothing filmmaking at its, I guess, finest. Uh, If you can get into the mood and get a kick out of the slightly sleazy mad scientist pulp story he is telling, it can be a good time for the 80-minute length chug. You have to be willing to forgive it the usual sloppiness, day shots colliding with night shots in the same scene, the shadow of the camera and Franco as cameraman creeping into frame... (laughs) Pointless gibberish for dialogue, but if you are aware of what to expect, it's not bad. It's not too good either, but I kind of got a kick out of it. So, yeah, yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's that. Uh, unexpected little extra review, Blast No, that, that's good. Well, I'm glad I asked, so I'll ask you for the other one then, because you know, the, oh, the, the other one that had Fred Williams the other one had Fred Williams in it. I don't uh, even know. I don't even reference Fred Williams. Exactly, yeah. Battle, so yeah. Um, well, I know... I know uh, Franco dabbled in the world of Edgar Wallace several times, and I'll bet uh, this particular one with Fred Williams called The Deadly Avenger of Soho. Is that one oh, you've ever No, ever I, I don't know that yeah, one. Yeah, I'm just curious about that one. Deadly so. Avenger of Soho. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Not, I, yeah. It's exactly, what, from what it's, year? It's, yeah, it's... Um, uh, 60s? Probably, probably. Okay. Um, yeah, I did not write down the year of that. Sorry there, no. But it was, but it is based on a on a Wallace creamy there, so or based on a Wallace novel, I guess okay. you'd say. Okay, that would so make sense. That might be one day worth hunting up at some point. Yeah, I wonder if it's. I wonder if maybe I've seen it under a different. It's title. probably as bad say. Yeah, you probably have seen it under several titles. So. <laughs> All right. Well, it's anyway. Now that time. we've extended this, yes. <laughs> 
We'll wrap this up and uh, call it a night. The discussion on uh, this particular Franco film, She Killed in Ecstasy, we'll mm-hmm. put to bed now. And uh, we'll take a break, come back, and uh, dive into the mailbag. Apparently, uh, we're going to have to swim around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Drowning in mail this week. <laughs> Just how drunk are we going to get? Welcome to Good Beer, Bad Movie Night, where each month we drink finely crafted brews while watching terrible films in order to see just how drunk you have to get to enjoy them. So tune in and join Troy. Tell more crates. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> Dave. I have the weirdest boner. And Pete. IPAs are ales, meaning they are bottom fermented. Excuse me, they are top fermented. I f- that up. <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> As we drag Kathleen, hear me, kicking and screaming through an alcohol-fueled podcast dedicated to movies of questionable quality and the frosty adult beverages that help make them tolerable. Good beer, bad movie night. Clearly, it's the beer's fault. It's time for Nashcast Mailbag. Yes. Hello, everyone. We've got uh, we got four different ones here tonight. Uh, we'll start with ooh, uh, one labeled "Long Overdue Feedback" from Doug. It says. Uh, Greetings, Troy and Rod. Uh, you got to you got them in reverse order. <laughs> that's right. It's Rod and Troy. Because <laughs> who who gets named first gets more uh, gets bigger percentage of the. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. especially of the merchandise. Yes. 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 It says uh, greetings. Just wanted to say thanks for introducing me to the films of Paul Nashi. Here's my story. Sometime in the early '70s, I saw Simon Terror on TV. The combination of UHF reception, a poor print, dubbing, an odd-looking mummy, and an even stranger-looking Frankenstein monster just did not entertain me. It was just too distracting, and it was nowhere near the universal monsters that I enjoyed so much. Ashy became someone whose heart was in the right place, but made movies I didn't really need to see. Somewhere in the early 90s, I tried again and bought a VHS copy of one of his werewolf movies. Faded print, dubbing, bell-bottoms, here we go again. Flash forward to the early to early 2020, and I'm hearing a promo for the Nashy cast on Monster Kid Radio. Werewolves in leisure suits. Hmm. Let's hear what I have been missing. So I start listening. And months later, I decide to actually watch one of the films and pick Horror Rises from the Tomb as you both rated it highly. It sounded interesting, and as I have always been a fan of Horror Express, I wanted to see more of Helga Linnae, never expecting how much of her I would see. Uh, yes, the full Helga we get. Horror Rises from the Tomb did not disappoint. I loved it all. The creaky wagon wheel, the unrepentant mobile, her head held high, Alric de Marnac's beheading, Mabille's impassioned curse, great music, perfect cast, and I could go on and on. I was hooked and started to watch as many of his films as I could find. Though Horror Rises from the, Horror Rises from the Tomb is at the top of the list, my favorite individual scene in a Nashi film is in The Mark of the Wolfman, La Marca de Ombra Lobo. Near the beginning, when Valdemar shows up at the masquerade ball, introduces himself to Janice, and leaves. Odd, mysterious, and sinister. Which leads me to wonder if you would do, consider doing an episode of your favorite scenes within Nashi films. I thought that might be interesting. Anyway, thanks again, Doug. Oh, wow. That's interesting, an interesting like idea. A Nashi, a Nashi mixtape, like a, like yeah. a mixtape of Nashi scenes. That's, you know, well, yeah, that, that might be one. Well, there are a number of... I think I could do that. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I'm already imagining three right off mm-hmm. the top of my head. Mm-hmm. I'll just say Head Squishing Mummy mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. Valdemar Daninsky leaping off a giant rock at, at a bitch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
I think I could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's jot that down for future reference. Yeah, I think that's a good that's idea. A good because, idea. Yeah, because yeah. we sure sure not coming across too many films these days, so we have to start coming up with these <laughs> other ideas. I thought before that we should, you know, should do an episode on our our favorite. Uh, Nashi like female villainesses or something or you know like ra- you know rank the you know the Nashi all the great Nashi villainesses from you know that's not <laughs> from, a bad from, idea you know, stuff like that uh, I think we <clears> might <throat> have uh, I think we might have the opportunity to do an interview with Bob Sargent oh okay uh, I talked fun. with him at length at length uh, a couple of well, about a month and a half two months back yeah we had a long phone conversation the first time we'd ever spoken directly we, we communicated over uh, uh-huh. you know over the the interwebs mm-hmm. using the old Yahoo groups and stuff like that for years and years. And we just, we talked for forever and I, I asked him if he'd be willing to be on the show. And so I think maybe that'd be, I think we may do that as well. I'd love to do that. Yeah. Cause there's a, there's a guy who loves him some Nash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he had, he had heaps of pre praise for our, uh, uh, hunchback of the morgue commentary track. Oh, great. He awesome. really, Really, as a matter of fact, that's what got him to just say, "Look, we need to, we need to talk. I want to, I want to, I want to talk to yeah, you." That's about high this. praise. I really appreciate that. Yeah, he was he was very pleased. He said that uh, he sat down, watched it, uh, you know, watched the uh, the Blu-ray, and then immediately just flipped it, you know, flipped, turned on the turned on the commentary track, and sat through the whole commentary track, mm-hmm. watched the movie back to back. Wow, that's great. Because he just could, he just was enjoying the commentary track. He says that he, he really enjoyed yeah. uh, the, 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 the fact that we came at it with humor, the mm-hmm. fact that the, the fact that we, uh, that we approached this up to, and he said, he said, I, he said, he'd never ever thought about the HP Lovecraft elements built, oh, wow. within, built within that creature. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. po- and pointed out that, you know, there are stills you can see where they were going to show you the interior of the room where that creature was. Mm-hmm. They, they clearly filmed some stuff in there and then realized that it'd be best to just have that have damn thing come bust. out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Burst out. This yeah, heap, yeah, yeah. heap come out. There. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I thought that was great. And I said, uh, uh, you know, so awesome. either, uh, late this year, beginning and next, uh, we're get, get, get on the old Skype monster and talk to it, it for a while. So, well, sounds yeah. good. What's our next email, sir? All right. Here we go. We got one from Kurt. Okay. Uh, he says, Dear Nashy Casters, as I go through episodes of Nashy Cast, I realize I'm at least the third Kurt who's written to you. What is it about Nashy and Kurtz? So it's, you know, it's it's Kurt. It's just the German, German name, Kurt. And it's, you that, know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that is a good question. Good well, question. Well, I mean, he did get a lot of financing from Germany from mm-hmm. a number of his movies. And so keeping, uh, keeping German names... Mm-hmm. In the uh, in the character roster was probably a smart move. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He says it makes me wonder what Kurt Nashy and I'm sorry, Paul Nashy and Kurt Vonnegut would have made of each other. <laughs> Vonnegut was very unromantic, but for the most part, he was a dedicated humanist. Nashy wrote and played characters who were romantic and trusting, but those fell out of his scripts as time went on and he faced betrayal. Nashy seems to have been a kind man, dedicated to his family, but he was very much not a humanist. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I almost know. feel like I feel like a lot of his anger and rage and, and and bitterness come from being a disappointed humanist. You know, as someone who yeah who was sensitive yeah. enough to see the that what should have been what humanity should have been, and then just constantly disappointed by what humanity really was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that it's that human beasts mm-hmm. idea. It's that yeah. you know, yeah. fight you know, fighting that duality within within the human creature. You know, mm-hmm. are, are we are we sentient thinking beings or are we just animals? And so yeah. So it goes back to talking about uh, Nashi and Vonnegut saying, could the two have found common ground? Maybe they could have talked about Vonnegut's book Galapagos, where it's uh, ultimately a good thing that the human race evolves into seals and makes a whole lot less trouble for each other and everything <laughs> around them. Yeah, and I, and yeah, I, I, yeah. Love, I, I would have never thought about the connection between those two, but I love me some Vonnegut. I really do. And, yeah. and uh, the most recent thing I read by him 
uh, just to recommend to you, Kurt, if you haven't read it, is a book called Fates Worse Than Death, as a book he wrote in uh, the early 90s, uh, that's filled, filled with his his great combination of, uh, kind of as you pointed out, uh, cynicism, but also uh, sort of whimsical love for people, too, at the same time that he can't help but see their foibles. So, yeah, great writer, terrific writer, one of my favorites for sure. He says, anyway, no need to read any of this on the air. Sorry, too late, Kurt. Too late! Unless any part of it fits in what you're already thinking and talking about. It doesn't, but we're doing it yeah, anyway. but we're doing it anyway. It goes, that's how we roll. And now a plea. Do you know of a legitimate way to see Wild Session with English subtitles? This is a recent documentary about the people who made Spain's cinematic golden age, well, golden. Nashi included. I can't find any kind of Blu-ray release, but you can stream the unsubtitled version at filmin.es. So it's like F-I-L-M-I-N dot E-S dot. New film. N-U-F-I-L-M dot live. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Let me... Let me... Say that again, folks. Is uh, he's saying you can stream the unsu- unsubtitled version at a site called filmin.es. Yes, and then he says uh, newfilm.live. That's n u f i l m dot live. Claims to have a copy with English subtitles, but the site's cus- customer testimonials look auto-generated, and clicking free trial takes me to a completely different site. So no. Um, I have not heard of this. I don't think you have either, but no, it sounds fantastic. A, uh, I would love it. It's to a see documentary it. that came out in 2019, uh, focused on, it's described as a walk down the memory lane of the Spanish golden age of, of B movies from Western shot in Almira to the age of the distop. That's the, you know, the, the disrobing uh, mm-hmm. after Franco's death. An homage to the professionals that created these works now nearly forgotten and the people they seem to have interviewed for this the cast list is incredible Alex Iglesias Antonio Mayans I'm skipping over names Esperanza Roy Eugenio Martin uh, Javier Aguirre Jordi Grau Lone Fleming Larita Tovar uh, holy crap and then a bunch of people from archival footage such as Jess Franco and Paul Nashi mm-hmm. and Peter Cushing and Alberto de Mendoza and oh Damn. my god the list goes on and on uh, no I do not I don't have an. I don't know a way to see this, but my God, do I want to? Yes, absolutely. So, this is incredible. Wild session, night. I'm sorry, 2019. Uh, certainly, man. Certainly, what I want. I want to see. Man, I need I'd to love, see this out. I'd love to see one of these uh, companies that may in the future release. You know, the some of the Nashi films yet to be put on Blu-ray to find a way to subtitle this thing and slap it on as an extra. As I want to see. Oh, or release it on its own. Or release on it. its own, sure. I can. Holy crap, would I buy this? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, no. Yeah. I so, do not, so sadly, the answer is no. We do not have. We don't know of a way to see it in English. He says, but uh, back to Paul Nashi. I'm glad you found a way to keep talking about him through talking with others about him. You always uncover new facets of the man, his work, and his era. If at all feasible, things I personally would love to hear you discuss on the podcast include Nashi's unpublished scripts. Late in his autobiography, he talked about his pile of scripts that no one was interested in making. What were they, and what would we think of them? Yeah, that'd be a, yeah. a great question. You know, Sergio would probably have, I'm sure, has those, and would have more of the information on those. You know, but we have from time to time got these tantalizing little. If we, if we just got plot synopsis and you know titles mm-hmm. and plot synopsis in the year they were written, that'd be great. Yes, it would. Um, he says, "I liked him too, some more than you did." Uh, and actually, okay. I th- actually, I think a lot of people did. I mean, I get the impression. I think, yeah, I think maybe we. 
us coming into it, having to do it as a podcast Maybe. and analyze it, probably made us be harsher on it. Some people may just been like, "Hey, it's Nashie's last film. It's 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 vampires, you know, and all this yeah, stuff, and it's yeah. it's vampire women. I'm just gonna have fun with this." Whereas I, maybe we were. Just, I wonder if we, I wonder if we returned to it just you know in a in a in a slightly different frame of mind if we would be less harsh about it. I, I just I was I just remember being so disappointed that there was so little. There was so little to hang my hat on with the thing, although, yeah. although I do love watching Nash on screen. Don't yeah. get me wrong. He says, uh, there, he says uh, he's, so he said he liked Impusa more than we did. He says, there might be better scripts that didn't get made. Nashi talked about his unrecognized filmmaking versatility, and maybe there are non-horror gems to discover. I would love if someday one or two of them could be animated the way Sylvain Cormet animated Jacques Tati's uh, unproduced script, The Illusionist. Yeah, oh, yeah. They, or like yeah. they've done with the Doctor Who stuff, you know, that they found yes, the audio too. But I mean, you know, that would be great to just see something It'd like that. Nice. He says, uh, he, he, for another thing he'd like us to discuss, he says, uh, discussing pa- Spanish history and its impact on Spanish film and vice versa. You've touched on this many times, and I apologize if you've already discussed it more at length. So many Nashi cast episodes, so little time. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. <laughs> I, I will take this break here right quick just to, to say something that, that's been amusing me uh, here recently because I've been watching the first season of Saturday Night Live. You know, I've, I got some of those early volumes, you know, that we've been watching the first season from, right. you know, 1975 and 6. And um, that was really at the time, you know, it was actually during that first season that they were doing the constant, you know, where they'd occasionally mention, you know, oh, General, uh, General, Franco. Yeah, General Franco is still dead, you know, <laughs> the news thing. And watching that, of course, when it came out, when I was like 10 years old, I mean, I didn't know who the hell General Franco was. I thought it was, he was obviously somebody who died, and I thought it was amusing that they were doing this shtick. But I sit there and think about now, I was like, I had no idea when I was 10 years old. If I had any idea how much I'd be talking about this Franco General character Franco, and yeah. General Franco and how much he would play into, you know, something passion. that you love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's of really, course, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, an odd, it's an odd thing. Life is true. strange. Life is truly strange. He says, uh, what movies were Spanish audiences able to see before the country opened up, and how did it inform their reactions to later films? Was it at all similar to Italy under Mussolini, which famously made white telephone movies instead of fantastic films? I'm told those white telephone films fed into post-World War II neorealism, until Peplum and Gothic movies brought something different to Italian screens. Did Spain have a similar phenomenon with its own fantasy and horror boom? And how instrumental were foreign productions like Spaghetti Westerns in opening up Spain to the world in the first place? Did Spanish audiences and filmmakers get to see the films being made in their country? Spanish spaghetti westerns did things that hadn't even been permitted until America's Hayes uh, under sorry had not been permitted under America's Hayes production code. Right. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I mean that's that, that's uh, I mean those are all fascinating subjects. Uh, he, he you know he's one of those things where he's almost if, if Rod and I ever like go to you know we tease the idea or talk to us among ourselves sometimes about somebody trying to do a book i mean he's he's almost giving he's almost giving <laughs> us a thesis an outline for you know all these things are are huge in in the you know uh, the history of spanish film this is true um he says uh, now what's the um i know there's probably i, I want to say right now he needs to read a book uh by uh, nicholas schlegel uh that's, oh, yeah. uh that's called sex sadism spain and cinema if yep. you haven't read that book uh, kurt i definitely uh, recommend you hunt that one out uh, last thing here, he says, the voice actors we all don't know and love. The same voices pop up again and again in the English dubs. Who were these folks? I have almost no clue, which is more than what I have about the Spanish dubbers. Uh, thank you for listening. Keep Be well and keep up the great work. Kurt number three or more. <laughs> well, as for the, the English dubbing voices, um, people who have a sharper ear than me or better memory for, for voices... Uh, there have been a lot of articles written about the people who did the the dubbing for a lot, especially the uh, the Eurotrash stuff that we love so much. 
Uh, and a number of those articles uh, have turned up in uh, turned up in Video Watchdog yeah. years ago. There's some really good uh, yeah. information there. Uh, seek that stuff out online. Go to the go to the Video Watchdog archive and uh, check around there. You'll find some really we well, find some good articles about the the people who were doing the dubbing, and some of them were just actors that you sometimes saw on screen as mm-hmm. well. As a matter of fact, most of them were. Yeah, and uh, and you do. He's right that you do come to love those voices after you watch so much of this stuff that yeah. they become they become almost like kind of old friends too. I mean, you know, it's like you're like, oh, I know that, you know, I know that voice. You know, that's pretty. Cool. I can never do that though. That dress, that's what drives me crazy. Anyway, <laughs> uh, here's a short one from from Billy. He says uh, from Billy Billy W in New Jersey. At least that's what I think NJ stands for. Mm-hmm. It could be, I, I don't know, <laughs> New Jack? It could be anything. Uh, he says, hi, guys. Just curious, which Falcon you thought was the good one? You never specified. I'm partial to uh, in Hollywood or in San Francisco. You're talking about the Falcon movies from the 1940s. Yeah, we must have mentioned that on some episode. I have no idea what we did, which one it would have been. but uh, I'll be honest. Uh, there were three different actors who played uh, the Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, the, two of them were brothers. There was George, the, yeah. there was George Sanders who started out uh, playing the Falcon. And then uh, he handed the, the role off to his brother, whose professional name was Tom Conway. Uh, both were very good in the role, don't get me wrong, but Tom Conway is the one who made the the most number of Falcon mm-hmm. movies there in the 40s. He started out yeah. in uh, uh, 1942, and then his last one was in 46. So he made, uh, what? He made about 10 uh, mm-hmm. of them. And I have to say that it... I, I, the, the good one is kind of a toss-up between the two of them, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I like George Sanders, and I like the way he played the role a little bit better. But Tom Conway kind of won me over the because he was he was in ten of the damn things, yeah. so he kind of wore me. <laughs> down. I think he just kind of wore me down, right? But and, and I have to admit that my favorite of the Falcon movies because it is just amazingly directed. It's directed by a guy who seems to have not known that he was making just a Falcon, <laughs> just, just a one of the Falcon movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, William Clemens directed it, and he directs it like a freaking art film. It's called The Falcon and the Coeds, oh, wow. and it is just artfully done. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, cool. it's okay. just really, really gets. It's out of all of them, that's the one that I would go back to again and again and again, just because of mm. how well it's directed mm. and how just incredibly sharply done it is. Interesting. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess I go with Tom Conway. But I, mm. George Sanders was much slicker in mm. the role. He, was, he came off as slightly smarmy, but a good guy nonetheless. Mm. Whereas Tom Conway always seems like a pretty solid guy with just a just a very little bit of smarm. Yeah. I suppose the, the smarm. Yeah. I like yeah. the I like the way yeah. George Sanders had the had the smarm. You know, kind of dialed up to oh, about yeah. seven or eight. Yeah. Whereas Tom Conway's smarm always seems to be kind of lurking around a four. So. <laughs> Well, I've never seen a Falcon film all the way through. I've seen clips of a bunch. Of, I've, all the ones I've ever seen have always been Tom Conway, but I'll come across them on Turner Classic Movies every now and then. And I always watch it. You know, it's never been a good time when I either like could sit on the table or just sit through and watch the whole thing. So I'll end up seeing just like a 20-minute chunk or something. Yeah. But, I've, you know, yeah, I found they look like fun films. Well, know, they've, they uh, the, all, the entire series, well, up through all the Tom Conway ones, have all been released by uh, Warner Archives mm. in, in two in two uh, multi-disc sets, so mm. they're they're that's how we watched them. Anyway, yeah. So, all right, looks like we got one more email here uh, from uh, Michael. Uh, says Nashi Cast, much appreciation for bringing Refuge of Fear to our attention. I'll definitely be picking up a copy of this, a 1974 genre movie with Patty Shepard, Teresa <laughs> Gipura, and Craig Hill as a must see for your occult fans, and with Patty Shepard nude scenes. Sign <laughs> me up. <laughs> Even if it isn't a great movie with a good, with a good release, it's still one to check out. 
This is true. Yeah, yeah. We enjoyed it. He says, uh, I'm a Skywall nut as well. The, oh, night- yeah. the nightmare issue with the exploding Earth on the cover is number 14. Ah, uh, cool, cool. Thanks for bringing it. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, you should mention that Severin is accepting pre-orders for a new box set featuring Folklora. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this yeah, is yeah. about, this is about a, month oh, yeah. and a, half, a month and a half ago. Folklora, uh, Folklora Blu-ray set called All the Haunts Be Ours. It's pricey, but looks like a great set for fans of movies about witches, secret cults in rural settings, and other folk horror tracks. Trappings. It also has a Blu-ray of Eyes of Fire, uh-huh. and it overflows with extras, as Severn is well known for. We should receive it in early December. Yeah, I, I ordered that. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah he was, I had to. He's listening to the uh, episode, I think we did, uh, probably with Sam Sam Deegan, where, where we were talking about the... Uh, was, I think it was when we talked about folk horror, where we talked about. Well, I think I, I can't remember all the things we touch on, but this bells because we did yeah. the yeah the episode we did with her. I think on the bell bell from hell. Yeah. And I think I, well because I, I I think what got into discussion about it because I gave her a personal thanks for on her other podcast for her covering Eyes of Fire because at that point yeah. I told her that she was the first person I ever heard reference that film you know that we all love so much but that is so obscure and then just here just a few months later then this this uh, set he's talking about comes out but you can get Eyes of Fire as a separate Blu-ray as well as the yeah. documentary. So that's what I had to spring for. I couldn't spring for the whole set as much as I wanted to, but I made sure I, I got the separate Blu-rays of the documentary and Eyes of Fire that are coming out. As usual, I had to overkill. So I, I wish I would have loved to have because it's a pretty impressive set. Uh, he says, uh, The Witch's Mountain from 1973 with Patty Shepard may be one to cover at some point if mm-hmm. you haven't done so yet. While being not so great Eurohara, it is elevated by Shepard, and our beloved Victor Israel graces us with his presence as well. The Witch's Mirror is an interesting film. If I could just find a half-decent copy of the thing that wasn't so damn dark that yeah. it made me want to kill myself, I'd be thrilled because I, I kind of, I, I kind of like the movie mm-hmm. as as even as you can see it in crappy looking prints now. Yeah, I've um, never watched it, but yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty. That's one of the things kind of working against it as far yeah. as just getting a decent release is that it's pretty easy to see on like. Cheap, you know, cheap, you know, multi-film packs. Right. But it, it, it's always the same print. It always looks like shit, which is a, it's just disappointing. Oh, he wrote this to us before Halloween. He says, "Have a great Halloween, and maybe treat us to something with some Halloween flavor on the Nashi cast." We missed that. I was gonna say that would require a thing that. called planning. And uh, here's what normally happens: is right now in September we'll be doing a podcast, and one of us will say, "You know, we ought to do something cool for October," and then we'll look at each other and realize, "Oh, we just did it again, didn't we? We waited yep. too because what we record in October won't come up to November." So yet again, we're screwed. The moments passed us by. Yeah. I mean, for instance, I mean, what should have been what should have been our October episode, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. We timed perfectly to come out the week after Halloween. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, you know, so yes, until we correct that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe if we only owned a calendar. Yes, I know. We never went. I've heard about these things. I've heard they actually I even, take a I, month and break it into into separate days in a grid. Yeah, a grid. that you can actually write something in. I it. know. And it's, I, who would have heard of such a thing? But showing our. Uh, Lack of planning capability. This is uh, this is where we say, hey, you, like mm. these fine people, could write to us at nashicast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, you may even inspire some mm. uh, future episodes because Lord knows uh, we, uh, we we like taking uh, mm. different pieces of advice from people yeah. and melding them into something different. Yeah. Please uh, uh, write to us about midsummer and say, hey, October's coming. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> right about June, go. Hey, you know Halloween's on its way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that might will help. spur us to action. <laughs> yes. Who? At least I hope it would spur us. I to would action. hope. Yeah. Who the hell knows? 
Uh, well, anyway, thank you very much for listening to the show. We are glad to have you here. Remember, you can check us out uh, whenever we get an episode finished, mm-hmm. which is all I can promise. Mm-hmm. But I do think we'll probably talk to Bob Sargent uh, when we can arrange that. And then I think we've got another couple of ideas for shows down the road. Uh, and I just want to thank you for listening to yes, this one. Definitely. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you.